The word revival, it comes from the root word revive, which means to restore life or consciousness, to regain strength, or to be given new life, strength, or energy. In the case of spiritual revival, the restoration of life and strength, in the case of spiritual revival, the restoration of life and strength, the giver of the strength and energy is God. Revival isn't necessarily something that we work up, we don't revive ourselves, it is something that God does, and that once God does it, we begin to work it out. There are several examples of revival given in Scripture. Um, we could say that the very first example of revival is found in Genesis after the fall. Adam and Eve had lost eternal life, but God revived them by giving them, covering their sin and giving them the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Uh, the book of Joshua, especially the first few chapters, could be said to be a picture of revival. Because by the time that Moses died, the majority of the people of Israel had become somewhat lukewarm in their service and their devotion to God. This is evident by their refusal to circumcise their children, which was something, one of the first things that God commanded them to fix before He would take them and give them uh, the promised land. So they revived as they obeyed God's commands, and then God gave them the victory in the promised land. The book of Judges shows us lots of examples of revival as it follows the pattern of prosperity of the people, rebellion against God, punishment from God, crying out to God for deliverance, and God raising up a hero to deliver them, and then revival as they were delivered, lived in a time of prosperity, and then the cycle just repeated over and over again. There are a lot more we could look at that would give us an idea of revival, that we would understand and see a picture of revival from Scripture. The question that we kind of always want to know, though, is where does When does revival come? I mean, because the need for revival is almost always evident, is almost always there, So, and God does it, so when does revival come? Tonight we're going to finish up with the book of Ezra by looking uh, at a story that gives us a bit of a pattern for revival. Open your Bible to Ezra 9, that should be page 369 in your pew Bibles, and when you find this, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Ezra 9.1 says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders has been the foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment, my robe, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. The time of the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment, my robe. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place 
that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us beside the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, and the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, which their abominations, uh, which have filled it from one end of the land to the other. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since your God, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandment and join in marriage to the peoples committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us till you had consumed us and there's no more remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though no one can stand before you because of this. Now while Ezra was praying. And while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God. A very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. The title of the message tonight is a, a pattern for revival. Let's pray. Our Father we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and goodness. We Thank you for the privilege we have of gathering here to sing your praise, call upon you in prayer, and to study your word. Tonight, as we look at this passage of Scripture, guide us that our eyes and our ears would be open to what you have for us, that we could learn and take from it, Lord, everything that we need. That, Lord, that if there would be a need for revival in our country, in our homes, in our church, in our lives, that, Lord, we would see it, and we would take the appropriate steps to seek you, till you brought revival into our lives. Father, have your way. In all of our lives tonight, fill me with your spirit to give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. We love you, Lord. We want your will to be done. Be glorified through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now about five months has passed since Ezra returned to Jerusalem. Ezra's excitement about being back in his homeland is cut short as he is confronted with a crisis threatening the lives of the remnant of exiles who had returned. And his response, the crisis and his response to the crisis, it kind of gives us this pattern for revival. Uh, the first that we learn is the need for revival. Right? The first in our pattern is a need for revival. Now the crisis facing Ezra, threatening to destroy the remnant, involves marriage. Some of the Israelite men had married pagan wives and they had arranged for their sons to marry pagan women as well. Now the leaders and rulers of the people were the foremost in this transgression. That's significant. That meant that not only were was this just like the commoners and people just out on the edges, but this was the main group. Those who were supposed to be leading Israel to serve, to worship God, were the ones violating God's command in this way. Now marrying a non-Jew, that was a... A massive violation of God's law. That was one of the main things that God repeated over and over again that they were not to do. Um, as kind of a side note that I did want to cover because of what we're talking about. God's law forbidding Jews from marrying non-Jews. It is really kind of when you look at church history, particularly in America, one of the most misunderstood laws of the Old Testament. It's often used as proof that God is against interracial marriages. I have read and seen many 
sermons and preachers and people talk about that because God did not let the Jews intermarry with the Amorites, that that's a sign that whites shouldn't marry African Americans or Hispanics or things along those lines. Uh, this is absolutely a, a misuse of this law as it really had nothing to do with race at all. For a proof that this is a misuse of it as race, we only need to look at the short story of Rahab and Joshua, right, who was taken in by the people of God and married into the Jewish people. She married a Jewish man, and, and that was okay. right? Or we read the book of Ruth, which is literally the whole story is about an interracial marriage. It is about a Moabite woman moving to Jerusalem and marrying a Jewish man who has, becomes a descendant of King David. Right? So rather what we see in this and what we see in the Old Testament is rather than God forbidding interracial marriages, what God was forbidding was interreligious marriages. God did not want His people to marry those who worshipped other gods. This is why the marriages of Ruth and Rahab were acceptable. Both Ruth and Rahab, in our day, we would say they converted. They were worshippers of Yahweh. right? And Now the reality is God has the same standard for marriage today that He has then, that He had then. Paul writes that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Part of being unequally yoked is a believer marrying an unbeliever or marrying someone from a different religion. So that's kind of the picture. That's what's going on. They have married people who worshipped other gods. Now the reason that God had given this law... And the reason that he maintains this standard today is because of the influence one spouse has on another. God did not and does not want a pagan to have a high level of influence on his people because he knew that would inevitably lead them to compromise and eventually fall away from him altogether. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see this explicitly stated. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and he has cast out Many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Make no covenants with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them, nor shall you give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And here's the reason. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Right? So there's the issue. Right? It wasn't that they were Jebusites or Gergesites or Hivites or any other ites. The issue was they worshipped another god. And in a marriage, that level of influence would inevitably lead to a level of strife that would likely cause, to, that would cause compromise. Right? I don't know, you might could picture it as... As the spouse saying, well, if we're going to go worship Yahweh on Saturday, why can't we go worship Baal or Chemish on Tuesday? Right? We're just doing both. Why, why does it always have to be me going to church with you? Why can't you go to church with me? Why can't you stay home with me and, and, and not go to church this week? Why do you have to pick your God over me? Right? And that level of strife would end up leading to compromise. Would end up leading to trouble. And that's what happened in Ezra chapter 9. They had married pagans of the land. And they were now, according to what we see in verse 1, they were taking part 
in the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Right? So they were they had married a pagan, they had embraced some of this pagan's ways, and they were taking part in their not just their worship, but their abominable activities. They had begun to adapt and conform to the culture of the pagans that they married. Worse yet, is that some Jewish men had actually divorced their wives, their Jewish wives, so that they could marry a pagan wife. Right? We don't see this here in Ezra, but the book of Malachi was written. Malachi was a prophet that prophesied during this time, and he gives us some information about it. He tells us from God that Judah had dealt treacherously, and an abomination had been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And here's how he had profaned it. Because Mary, the daughter of a foreign god. Right? And for this reason, God stopped regarding their sacrifices. He, he would bring judgment upon them. As the people kind of asked why, Malachi answers. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord... Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Right? They've made that covenant relationship between them and God. And now some for somehow the Jewish men had dealt treacherously. What was the treacherous things that they had done? Well, Malachi tells us. The Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. But what they had done is they had had a Jewish wife. And they said, I want one of these new pagan women that everybody else is married. So they put their wife away, their Jewish wife away. They had done it through treachery. Because remember the law, there were high standards for what you could do. So they would, the men would have to lie and say their wife had done this or their wife was like that. And they, that's what kind of the idea of they covered the garment with violence. Because in the law, what was the punishment for adultery? So if three guys get together and they all want to divorce their Jewish wives and marry pagan wives, and they can say, well, I saw, I saw Stacy's wife. She was sleeping around. And I saw it, and I saw it, and I saw it. And they take her out and they stone her. And he marries. Well, then I saw, and I saw. And that's kind of what was going on. So they were covering their garments with violence as they were taking these women out and having them murdered so that they could take these new wives. They could divorce them in that way. And in doing this, in divorcing their wives and taking the pagans, taking part in the abominations of these pagans, what they had done is they had conformed to the culture around them. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's something God had specifically said over and over again. They were not to do a good portion of the book of Leviticus gives all of these things they are not to do. And most of the time, as it lists all this stuff they're not to do, it bookends it at the front end by saying, the pagans of the land do this, and you shouldn't do it because I'm the Lord your God. And it would end by saying, and these are the things the defilement of people of the land have done, and you shouldn't do it because I'm the Lord your God. Right? And so God has never wanted His people to be just like the culture and the world around them. When we get to the New Testament, His standard hasn't changed. Right? The familiar passage, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, my very favorite paraphrase uh, of Romans 12, 2 still comes from the message which says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. That's a challenging thought. Don't become so well adjusted. Don't become so comfortable in the world you live in that you become just like everyone else without even really thinking if that is okay. And that's kind of what had happened in Ezra. They had begun to fit into their culture. They were just like the people around them and they gave it no thought at all. And this conformity, it began with compromise. God said, don't marry a pagan. God said, stay married to your spouse. And they compromised by marrying pagans. They compromised by first divorcing their wives to then marry a pagan. And this compromise, it led to them conforming by taking part in the abominations of the pagans. Right, so revival is needed when the people of God begin to conform to the culture around them. Revival is needed when the people of God begin to conform to the culture around them. So in light of that, is revival needed in our day? Do we see conformity and or compromise and conformity in the church today? Now let me ask you two questions. Is the church Christians, right? Because that's what we're talking about. Not our church, but Christians. Are Christians separate and distinct from the world, from the culture... In our morals, our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, and our speech. Or, has the church largely adopted the same morals as the culture around them? The same values as the culture around us? The same priorities as the culture around us? The same attitudes as the culture around us? Do we do the same actions of the culture around us? Do we react to stressors in the same way that the culture around us does? Is our speech similar, the same, as the world around us? Is the church separate and distinct, unique and devoted to God as the people of God? Or have we assimilated? Have we conformed? Are we more like the world than we are like our Christ that we serve? Revival is needed when the people of God begin to conform to the culture around them. The second part of the pattern for revival that we see is the burden for revival. It says in verse 3 that when Ezra heard this thing, he tore his garment, his robe, he plucked out some of the hair of his head and his beard, and he sat down astonished. Uh, he was astonished at the compromise and conformity of the people. His physical response stood out to me. He tore his garment and his robe. He plucked some hair from his head and his beard. And then he just sat down astonished. Now in light of his physical response, I couldn't help but think that maybe astonished wasn't a strong enough word for what he really felt. So I checked some of the other translations. Uh, where the New King James says astonished, the Christian Standard Bible says he was devastated. The English Standard Version says he was appalled. The New Living Translation says he was utterly shocked by what he saw. Now there were others that responded this way with Ezra. 
It tells us in verse 4. The question is, why? Why was he so bothered? Why not just say, you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we'll just be all happy? Why respond by being astonished, appalled, utterly shocked and devastated? And the answer is given to us in verse 4. Then everyone who, who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled with me because of the transgression those who had been carried away captive. They responded this way because they trembled at God's word. Ezra and these other people took God's word so seriously. The compromise and conformity of his fellow believers bothered them to the point that they were absolutely broken about it. I think there's likely two reasons that they were so burdened and so broken over the compromise and conformity of their fellow Israelites. First is they knew that God judged sin. I mean, there are, they are, after all, just returning from exile. They had spent the last 70 or so years in Babylonian captivity that came about because they had previously compromised and conformed to the point that God sent judgment upon them, destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the temple, and carried them away captive. Now after 70 or so years, they are just now coming back and they are repeating the same mistakes over again. Ezra and the others knew that what God had done 70 years before, He still did in their time. He, they, he knew that God still brought judgment for sin. And what He had done in the captivity before, He was very likely to do Again, secondly, they were concerned for God's glory. Ezra and others knew from Scripture that God was passionate about the glory of His name. They also knew that when the people of God compromised and conformed, God was dishonored and His name was shamed. Now, as we look at how they responded, is that how we respond? As we look at, whether it's the church culture at large, or we look at, our church, we look at our families, we look at our community. Right Now, we're not talking about the lost. We're not talking about the unbelievers at this point. We're talking about Christians, the church. As we look out over the church world, if we answered yes above, that we see conformity and compromise. If we see it, does it bother us? Does it leave us burdened and broken? Over the, the compromise and conformity of the church to the world around them. As we see the church share the same morals as unbelievers. Does that bother us and cause our hearts to be broken? As we see that the church has the same values as unbeliever does. Does that leave us burdened and broken? As we see many in the church that have the same priorities that an unbeliever would have. Does that leave us burdened and broken? So we see unbelievers have the same attitudes. And believers have the same attitudes as an unbeliever. Does that leave us burdened and broken? So we see believers that act the same way as an unbeliever does. Does that leave us burdened and broken? So we see unbelievers react to, or believers react to stressors in exactly the same way as an unbeliever does. Does that leave us burdened and broken? As we see believers who talk and use the same language. As an unbeliever does, does that leave us burdened and broken? 
should. I mean, if we would say, yes, there is conformity and compromise in the church world at large, then if we truly believe that, then there should be this same response in our hearts and in our lives. We should be astonished, devastated, utterly shocked, horrified, whatever word we want to use along there. And it should leave us burdened and broken for the same two reasons. That judgment will come. Judgment will come. God will do something similar to His New Testament people, the church, that He did to His Old Testament people, the Jews. He will first bring conviction. Right? Isn't that what, what He did? When the, when the Jewish people began to stray, didn't God first send prophets to them to say, Hey, turn back. Don't do this evil thing that I hate. Turn back and follow my ways. God will then begin to correct. And He will begin to, to do things to make it more difficult. To bring more and more into our life. To, to force us to course correct. And then He will eventually bring chastisement. I mean, that's the pattern we see in the Old Testament. But God does something very similar in the New Testament. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But read the seven letters to the seven churches from Revelation 2 and 3. And remember. I mean, look at what Jesus says to them. Right? He, he does try to convict. He does try to correct. And, and most of those that are receiving the conviction and the correction, they are compromised churches. They have compromised truth. They have conformed to the world around them. But then also notice that Jesus always brings a threat with them. And the threat typically is of some sort of judgment that would fall on that local church, on those people, if they did not repent. Now, Scripture, of course, doesn't give us what happened. But as we look at history, we know. For instance, I looked up Laodicea today. There's not a Christian church in Laodicea today. I wonder why that is. Is there a Christian church at Ephesus? Is there one at Sardis? How many of those places that Jesus sent letters to and said, you're conforming, you're, you're, you're compromising, turn back or else. How many of them saw the or else? Well, from what we can tell from church history and secular history, all of them did. Jesus did then what He had done in the Old Testament in a manner of speaking. And what He did then, He will do today. He will convict. He will correct. He will chastise. And then He will let judgment fall. I mean, even Peter says judgment must what? First begin at the house of God. And if we are scarcely saved, what about the unbelievers? Hey, when God brings judgment, it's not starting the protesters. It's not starting in D.C. It's starting in a compromised and a conformed church. And spreads out from there. Secondly, God must be glorified. God is passionate about His name being glorified among all people, but particularly unbelievers. God must be glorified. Malachi 
he tells us, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. Now, notice the wording, Gentiles and the nations. Right. So he's not saying, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name shall be great among the Jews, among my people. What he's saying is, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name shall be great among the unbelievers. Those who do not know me and do not worship me. Now, we don't have time to get into Malachi. But in Malachi, the way they would show that God's name was great was by offering Him the sacrifices that He demanded. Giving Him the best rather than the junk. And as they were giving Him their junk, they were showing that God's name was contemptible and that He wasn't worthy of that sort of glory and honor. Again, when we come to the New Testament, we find something very similar. God's absolute desire is that His name would be made great. That those out there who would never darken the door of a church, that they would see how we live, who we are, what we do, and they would say, I don't know that I believe in their God, but He must be awesome because of the way that they live. But that is something, a compromise and a conformed church cannot do. But Paul says, says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now there's compromise and conformity in this passage. You have the Bible, you know. So you know it says you don't steal. But you do, even though you teach against it. You know you shouldn't be sexually immoral and you teach against it, but even though you know it, you still do it. And so they say one thing, they do another, but in their actions they act like the world, the the pagans around them. Compromise and conformity. Paul goes on to tell us the result of this. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. A compromise and a conforming church does not glorify God, cannot glorify God. Rather, a compromise and a conforming church dishonors God through their compromise and conformity, and causes God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. God is glorified when His church is different in its values, morals, priorities, attitudes, actions, reactions, and speech from the world around them. When there is a distinction, a stark difference between light and darkness, God is glorified. However, God is dishonored and God is blasphemed when His church shares the same morals as the unbelieving world. When His church shares the same values as the unbelieving world. When His church has the same priorities as the unbelieving world. The same attitudes, actions, reactions, and speech. God is not honored. He is not glorified through a compromised and a conformed Church. This truth should leave those of us who tremble at God's word burdened and broken over those who are compromised and conformed. We should be 
burdened and broken because judgment will fall. Also in Romans 2, God says, Paul writes that, that God has no favorites who can get away with evil. God will judge. He will do that. And it should break our hearts that God is being dishonored by people who claim His name. That should break our hearts. It should burden us to pray. Those who tremble at God's Word should be broken and burdened when the church is compromised and conformed. And that leads to our, how we first respond and as we pray the prayer for revival. Verse 5, it says, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, tore my garment, having torn my garment, my robe, I fell on my knees, spread my hands out to the Lord my God. And he, then he begins to pray. And his prayer, as you read it, we won't read the whole thing, we'll just hit some highlights in a minute. But his prayer is, is passionate and genuine. Right? He's not going through the motions. He's not praying because he's supposed to. He's not checking a box. Really, he's just praying because he didn't know what else to do. I mean, what, what, what else can they do? These people know better. They, they have just come back from judgment. And now they're doing this again. God, oh God, what, what on earth do I do? Some interesting things we see in Ezra's prayer. First, we see that he, he, he confesses the sins of the people. Right? I, but interestingly, what I found interesting about him confessing the sins of the people was that he includes himself in the confession, right? Verse 6, And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, for, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers, to this day we have been very guilty for our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been delivered. Right? I mean, he, he confesses this kind of all throughout, even when you get to verse 13. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, verse 14, that we should again break your commandments and join marriage, the committing the abominations. Would you not be angry with us? You had consumed us. Then verse 15, that's about our guilt. Ezra includes himself, despite the fact from all that we know, Ezra did not do this. Ezra didn't marry a pagan. Ezra didn't divorce his Jewish wife to marry a pagan wife. So why... Did he include himself and not just say, oh God, them, those people, those over there? It's because of humility. Ezra knew that he himself had sinned. Now sure, he may not have compromised and conformed in the ways that they had, but Ezra had sinned. He may have been innocent of this sort of compromise and conformity, but he was not innocent. There is a deep Humility in Ezra's prayer. The humility of saying, I may not have done that, but I have done something. Therefore, I am not innocent. We also see in verse 8 and 9 a recounting of what God had done. For a little while grace has been shown to us from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a peg in this holy place. That our God may enlighten our eyes to give us a measure of revival in our bondage. We were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in this bondage. He had extended mercy to us inside the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair our house, to rebuild the ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, it's frequent in the Old Testament for them to recount what God had done, but typically it's for one of two things. One, they're either reminding God, God, you did this, now do it again. Or they're reminding themselves, God did this. Oh God, we need you to do it again. But it's not that. 
either of those in this passage. Instead, he's recounting what God had done to show a deep remorse for their sin. What he's essentially saying is, you have done a lot for us, God. And still, we did this. Despite the fact that you brought us back from exile. We went right back and compromised and conformed in the same old ways again. Ezra is expressing the severity of their sin. He knows that this compromise and conformity, it's not a minor thing. It was a grievous sin against God and against the mercy of God who had brought them back. And so he expresses that. And then in verses 10 through 15, Ezra also explicitly confesses the promise, the compromise and conformity. Right? He, he talks about, God, you told us to not marry, and then we, we did. And he's doing that to say, we didn't sin in ignorance. This wasn't an accident. This was a, a willful, presumptuous sin against you, our God. And I think there's also an awareness of God's mercy. Right? He does recount what God has done in the past. But he also mentions in verse 13 that you, have not, you, our God, have not punished us, or you have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. And has given us such a deliverance as this. There is, he knows that God is merciful. He has shown that mercy in the past. So for us, do we, do we pray passionately for revival? Again, if we see it. If we see in the church world compromise and conformity. And if we're bothered by it like we ought to be. Do we pray passionately for revival? We should. I mean, that, that should be a part of what we pray for regularly, if not daily, for God to revive His work again in the midst of the years. And we can learn from Ezra some things that we should pray. Right? For instance, we should confess sin. Not just their sin, but our sin as well. Right? We may not have compromised and conformed in the ways that others have, but chances are, we have compromised and conformed in other ways. We've just found ways to excuse our compromise and conformity because it's different than theirs. Prayers for revival must include a confession of sin. The church, our sin collectively, and my sin individually. We not only confess sin, but confess the severity of the sin. With confession is our recognition of the severity of our sin. We can't minimize the sin, the compromise, or the conformity. We cannot do this when we collectively confess sin. And we cannot do this when we personally confess sin. We have to confess that our sin, well again, whether it's our sin corporately, our sin individually, it is serious, it is severe, it is a grievous sin against God and against His love and against his mercy. Confess sin specifically. While Ezra starts with our iniquities, he ends by being very specific about the sin. We should too. Generic confession of sin is never enough. Oh, we have sinned. If we're confessing, we must be specific as we can be. If we are confessing a collective sin... I mean, if we're confessing a collective sin, 
we were confessing a sin of our church, our local church. It wouldn't be enough to say, oh God, our church has sinned at some point in the past and we're pretty sure it must have been bad. If we were to confess sin as a local church, we would have to be specific about the sins this church, this body that we had done for it to be effective as a genuine confession of sin. It's the same with our personal sins. It's not enough to say, Lord, I'm sure I did something today. Please forgive me if I failed you in any way today. The confession must be, I did this, that, specific as we can be. And then finally, confess God's mercy. Why should God spare us? Why should God revive us? The basis for this is God's mercy and not our merit. Never our merit. Never revive us because of how good we've been. Never revive us because we have done some good things even though we did some bad things. Never revive us because at one point we were really on fire. But revive us because you, O God, are merciful. Because you have revived us in the past. Because you have not punished us as our sins deserve. We acknowledge the ways that God has delivered us. The ways He has forgiven us. The ways He has shown mercy. And we plead for that again. Those who tremble at God's word and are broken and burdened when the church has compromised and conformed to the culture should pray for revival. Regularly, if not daily. And then once this pattern has come, we see the last part, and that is the signs of revival. Once we move from Ezra 9 to Ezra 10, we move from a burden for revival, really to signs of revival. I was going to call it the experience of revival, but I don't know that it's, it doesn't really give us the fullness of the experience of revival, but we do begin to see the signs that revival is working and coming in their midst. Uh, this chapter shows us three. Uh, cover a lot. It's the whole chapter. But the first one is a brokenness over sin. Right? In Ezra 10 and 1, it says, now Ezra, While Ezra was praying, while he was confessing, weeping, bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. So Ezra and these others who were burdened were praying and crying out. They're weeping. They're confessing. They're crying out to God. And then all of this large crowd of people who had previously conformed and compromised, they come to join them. And they are at this point, they are weeping very bitterly. Right? They're not, it's not just like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that. But I mean, there it's almost uncontrollable sobs is the picture. They are overcome by their sin. Ezra is overcome by the sins of the people. These folks are overcome by their own personal sin. Right? They're not coming at this point saying, what Gerald did was terrible and I probably shouldn't have done something close to it, but what Gerald did was really terrible. Right? At this point, they're probably not even aware that anyone else is around them. I don't think they had a meeting and were like, hey, you think we should go up there and join Ezra and maybe confess our sin? Let's take a vote. Okay, all in favor of going with Ezra? Okay, we've got ten in favor of, two opposed, motion carries, let's go. I think mostly what it was, is they, would, they, would, they saw it, right? Because they're just kind of right out there. And I think as they saw it, God's convicting work was at work. And they were just like, and they knelt down and then someone said, oh, 
and just over. I don't think it was in mass. The horde comes up. Here, there, there, over. And they are weeping very bitterly over their sin. Brokenness over sin, it is one of the first signs of revival. Typically it starts with those who are devoted to God. They're broken over the sin of others. But then it spreads to those who are compromised and conforming. Now, be sure of this. Where there is no brokenness over sin, there is no revival. No matter what else there may be. We don't have time to look at it, but write this down. Compare later. Compare 1 Samuel 4 with 1 Samuel 7. Both give us a picture of what could be called revival, and they're very different. In 1 Samuel 4, the revival includes yelling and screaming and hooping and hollering. In 1 Samuel 7, the revival includes just standing there and humbly bowing before the Lord. Now the revival, what seems to be a revival in 1 Samuel 4, while it's very excited and very emotional, it ends with the ark of God being taken by pagans as the armies of God are defeated before them. What we have in 1 Samuel 7 is a recommitment to God that lacks the emotion and the excitement of 1 Samuel 4. I'm not opposed to excitement and emotion, but excitement and emotion alone are not a guaranteed sign of revival. People can be excited and emotional and never broken over their sin. Brokenness over sin is a sure sign of revival. second sign of revival that we see is turning to God. In verse 2 it says then, I'm not going to try to say his names. They spoke to Ezra and they said, We have trespassed against our God, have taken pagan wives from the people of the land, and yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. They've sinned, they're weeping very bitterly, there's no sort of minimizing or justifying with this admission. It's just, we, this is what we did. But it's not hopeless. There is hope. Their hope, of course, was in God. What God had done in the past by forgiving them and delivering them, He would do in the present. He would show mercy again. There was hope for today. Right? That turning to God is, is a sign of revival. Those who are broken over their sin, they do Turn to God. Always. If someone is legitimately broken over their sin, they will turn to God. Now, if someone is upset that they got caught sinning, there may be emotion, but that's not necessarily brokenness over sin that leads them to God. That's the key. The tell the, the of the emotion is what happens after that. Okay, I'm emotional over my sin, but now what? Does it lead me to God? Or does it lead me back to the way I was? Because be sure of this, where there is no turning to God, there is no revival. Genuine revival does not merely ease the conscience of the one whose conscience is hurt and then leave them to go right back out into the world. Genuine revival causes them to turn to God to forgive their sins, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, and it will leave them there with the God who has forgiven them. It will leave them in that spot where they will stay. 
They will continue with God. And that leads to the third sign of revival. A recommitment to Scripture. Verse 3, it says, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my Master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let us let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Ezra arose, made the leaders and the priests and the Levites and all of Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore the oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God, went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Elisha. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those in captivity. He issued a proclamation, and it just goes on and on that they determined that they would do the word of God. The rest of the chapter shows them living out a commitment. Right? They, they said, you know, we are broken over our sin. We know that God is our only hope. From this point on, we're going to do what, what God says. Right? And of course, what God says is in the Word. right? So they have a, a recommitment to Scripture. And the rest of the chapter shows them living it out. Verses 3 through 5, they, they actually determine. They are going to tremble at God. Or they do. They tremble at God's Word and they determine to obey it. Verses 6 through 44, we won't have time to read it. But they, but they do this despite the difficulty, right? Because for them, this recommitment to Scripture, it is difficult for two reasons. One, the lesser of the two, is it says in verse 9, that all the men of Judah, Benjamin, gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So they trembled the word. They were trembling because of the rain. And... Well, the New King James says the ninth month, according to my commentaries, that would be December to you and I. So they stood out in the rain in December while the word was taught to them about what they were supposed to do. It's a commitment. Suffering. Shivering. I mean, part of the reason they were shivering is because of the cold and the wetness. They were committed to doing that. They didn't say, can we just go in? I mean, we'll, we'll I mean, give us the Cliff Notes version. They stood for as long as it took. To hear what they needed to hear. And as difficult as that was, that's the lesser of the two reasons. The greater of the two that shows their commitment and their commitment to Scripture. They would have to put away their foreign wives and the children born to them. Because those kids had, apparently had not been committed to God, but had been committed to Chemosh or Baal or whatever false god. So the, the wives... Married Jews, but they weren't Jews. They didn't convert to worship Yahweh. They still worshiped the God of their ancestors. They were raising those kids to worship the God of their ancestors. So in their home, they were married to a pagan. They were raising pagans. In order to recommit themselves to God, they would have to send send them away. Not just divorce, but send them away. They would have to leave the land. And... It doesn't say it in Ezra, but knowing what the rest of the Old Testament says, they would also pretty much have to commit to a life of celibacy after that. They weren't going to be allowed to remarry. It's a big commitment. This isn't, I'll just start over from here, and I've made this mistake and I can't undo it, so I'm going to start over from here and move forward like it is. I mean, this is a cutting away. This would be emotional and painful, hard. 
Kind of reminds me of what Jesus says in the New Testament about gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands, right? That's kind of the picture that they have. And, and yet they, they did it. They did what they had to do because revival was stirring in their hearts. They were broken. They, they had sinned. This was their fault. I mean, all of this mess that was going on, the heartache, the hurt that was going to come, it was their fault. This wasn't God was mean. And God is telling you, you know, God is just like being mean to you and making you do something ridiculously hard. If they had just obeyed God to begin with, they wouldn't have been in this mess. It was their fault. Their sin was causing their pain. Their sin was going to cause pain of the wife and the child. Their sin affected others, but they had to do it. Revival was stirring. They had to acknowledge it was their responsibility to send it away. They were broken over their sin. They were turning to God and they were committed to Scripture. And in some ways, this commitment to Scripture it is a carryover of turning to God and staying with God. Because the truest test of turning to God and staying with God is not so much in the emotion of the moment. It's not even so much in the days or the weeks after. It's in the lasting commitment that one makes to Scripture and the God who gives it. I mean, be sure of this, where there is no commitment to Scripture, there is no revival. Scripture, history, and life give us Plenty of examples of people who seemed to turn to God in tears, but didn't stay with God through commitment to Scripture. Let me give you three examples. One from Scripture, one from history, one from my personal life. Judges 2. They just conquered the promised land. They gathered together. The angel of the Lord speaks and says, why haven't you defeated all the people of the land like I told you to? Why haven't you done that? I'm not going to go with you now. And there it is. And they weep. And they cry. They weep so hard that they name the place weeping. And then they get up and they go back home and they do nothing different. The angel of the Lord spoke, told them what they had done wrong. They all, they cried out and then they went on about the daily business. They never even tried to finish what God had told them to do. No real revival. Emotion, but no revival. 9-11. How many of you remember after 9-11, churches were full, weren't they? Our church had a prayer meeting of the night of 9-11. It was full that night. Everybody in our church was there. That Sunday, everybody in our church and virtually everyone they knew was there. Guess how many were there two Sundays later? Not many. I mean, the Sunday after 9-11 was one of the biggest days in church history in America. Churches in stark decline ever since. A lot of emotion, a lot of crying, but no lasting fruit. They didn't stick with it. And then in my personal life, there was a kid in my youth group who got caught doing drugs, got caught by the police, took him home. So he came to church. It was a Friday. He got caught, came to church on Sunday, talked to me and the guy that was his Sunday school teacher. Lots of emotion. Lots of tears. Lots of... (laughs) Over what he had done. Came to the altar. Prayed a lot of the same things at the altar. Two weeks later. Guess where he was? Back out doing the same things that he had done before. There's no real revival. There was nothing genuine. He was sorry. 
he got caught and was afraid his mom and dad were going to really lay the hammer down on him. Emotion and crying, praying, tears, those are good part of being broken over sin. But if those things don't turn us to God and then lead to a commitment to Scripture, they are just tears and snot and noise. There is no eternal value, no lasting change. The signs of revival, brokenness over sin, not getting caught, but the sin itself, turning to God, staying with God, and a recommitment to Scripture. Genuine revival always causes these things. These things are always evident. And where there is no brokenness, there is no revival. Where there is no turning, there is no revival. Where there is no recommitment, there is no revival. So when does revival come? Revival comes when the compromise and conformity of God's people breaks our hearts enough To repent of sin and plead for revival. If you would say there is compromise and conformity in the church world. In America. In Oklahoma. Guyana. Then our hearts should be be broken over it. And if they're not we should start praying there. Break my heart over what breaks yours O God. And we should repent of the sin of compromise and conformity. And we plead for revival. And then we start looking for the signs of revival in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Give us eyes that would see we would see clarity of grace, but with clarity. Whether there is compromise and conformity among your people in in our church, in our town, in our state, in our denomination, in our nation. Where there is, break our hearts over it. Let us not just say that's how it is or that's the age that we're living in. Let us not lump it up to an end times apostasy that doesn't leave us with any responsibility or care about it at all. Let our hearts ache over the fact that judgment will come to the house of God. That compromise and conformity is bringing shame and reproach upon your great name. And let us plead for revival in our day. Let us confess our sin. Let us confess the severity of our sin. Let us be specific about our confession. But oh, let us bank upon your mercy, O oh God. You have revived your church in the past. We believe that you can do it again because you are good, you are kind, and you want your name to be great on the earth. And let us see this working in our midst. Whether it's in our lives, whether it's in our church or our community. Let us see the signs of revival coming because we are crying out to you for it, Father.
Have your way in our hearts and our lives, we ask. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.